Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. My name is Riley Walters. I'm a policy analyst here in our Asian Studies Center uh, for Asia Economy and Technology. I just want to plug a couple events that the Asian Studies Center is having later this month. On June 7th, we're hosting an event on the defense of Uyghurs in China. Uh, and on June 12th, we are having an event, a half-day event on U.S.-China, or U.S.-Taiwan relations. Um, so today's event, thank you for all coming and joining us today, by the way. Um, today's event is titled The State of China's Economy. <clears throat> I thought it might be helpful to take a step back from the constantly moving pieces in the U.S.-China bilateral relationship and look at some more broader economic trends. Um, China has been the United States' largest trading partner for the past four years now, and last year alone we traded $660 billion worth of goods. Imports and exports have benefited both of our economies, uh, but policymakers in Washington are having a difficult time right now balancing this with a variety of other concerns it has with Beijing. U.S.-China relationship is going through a particularly turbulent time right now, and we're hearing more nationalistic rhetoric from both sides of the Pacific regarding a variety of commercial and non-economic issues. Um, meanwhile, the increase of tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese imports and $60 billion worth of U.S. exports goes into effect this Saturday. Just as quickly as some of these issues have escalated politically, I believe they have the potential to dissipate as well. So I want to take a, a broader look at what's happening in our economies and what is the broader sense of things as we see them. U.S. economic growth is pretty good right now. First quarter GDP was re revised down just slightly this morning, but the trend is still positive. At the same time, employment is good and wages are rising. However, the U.S. Uh, fiscal deficit is also rising, and it seems we're almost hearing more about the trade deficit these days than we are our growing fiscal deficit, which I think is more worrying. And what about China's economy? Well, <clears throat> China's uh, annual growth is positive, but projected to continue to decline as it settles into the middle income trap. Meanwhile, there is also concerning rise in debt levels. China is also looking to face huge labor and demographic problems as it tries to balance a growing service-led economy and, of course, automation. Uh, so to tell us what all of this means, uh, I think, uh, and to help us figure out what the state of China's economy truly is and where it's trending, I've invited several uh, experts here today, and I expect they'll be able to help us understand the trends faced by the business community, the overall macroeconomic situation in China, and, of course, the trends in the U.S.-China economic relationship. So to first introduce to my left, we have Dr. Scissors. Derek Scissors is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on the Chinese and Indian economies and on U.S. economic relations in Asia. 
He is concurrently chief economist at the China Beige Book. Dr. Scissors is the author of the China Global Investment Tracker. In late 2008, he authored a series of papers that chronicled the end of pro-market China's reform and predicted economic stagnation in China as a result. He has also written multiple papers on the best course for Indian economic development. <clears throat> and before joining AEI, Dr. Scissors was a senior fellow, research fellow here in our Asian Studies Center and an adjunct professor uh, of economics at George Washington University. He has worked for London-based Intelligence Research Limited, uh, taught economics at Lingnam University in Hong Kong, and served as an <clears throat> action officer in international economics and energy for the Department of Defense. Dr. Scissors has a bachelor's degree from the University of Michigan and a master's degree from the University of Chicago and a doctorate from Stanford. <laughs> to his left, we have Ambassador Allen. Craig Allen has served as president of the U.S.-China Business Council since July of 2018. Prior to joining the council, Craig had a distinguished career in government service beginning in 1985 at the Department of Commerce's International Trade Administration. Early in his career, Craig served as director of the American Trade Center in Taipei and as commercial attaché in the, at the embassy, U.S. Embassy in Beijing, then spent several years at the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo. Craig then worked uh, on the Brunei, China, and Mexico APEC summits at the National Center for APEC in Seattle. In 2002, he returned to Beijing and was promoted to the minister-counselor rank of the senior foreign service. After four years in South America, Craig became Deputy Assistant Secretary for Asia at ITA and later Deputy Assistant Secretary for China. Craig served as U.S. Ambassador to Brunei Darussalam from December 2014 to July 2018, and Craig received a B.A. from the University of Michigan in Political Science and Asian Studies and holds a Master of Science in Foreign Service from Georgetown University. And finally, to his left, we have Wayne Morrison. Uh, Wayne is a specialist in Asian trade and finance at the Congressional Research Service, where he has worked for 36 years. He is the leading CRS specialist on China's economy and U.S.-China commercial relations. Wayne began his career at CRS in 1983 as a reference assistant in the taxation and government finance section. In 1988, he was transferred to the International Trade and Finance Section, where he began working as an analyst on U.S. commercial ties with Japan, South Korea, China, Hong Kong, Thailand, India, and Taiwan, as well as <clears throat> U.S. government export promotion programs, U.S. trade remedy laws, protection of U.S. intellectual property rights, and congressional policies to address foreign unfair trading practices. Since 1999, Wayne's work has mainly focused on China due to the extensive congressional interests in U.S.-China economic trade, uh, economic and trade relations, and the implications of China's emergence as a global economy. Since 2017, Wayne has served as an adjunct professor at Syracuse University's Maxwell in uh, Washington program, where he teaches a course on international political economy. Wayne received a B.A., in political science from the University of Maine, and a master's degree in public policy from the University of Maryland. Um, it says here that Wayne is not just a Boston Red Sox fan, but a huge Boston Red Sox fan. Uh, and so with that, I'm going to turn it over to Derek to get us started on this discussion. Um, we'll give 10 minutes each, roughly each panelist, and then we'll go into questions and answers afterwards. Thank you. Thanks, Riley. Uh, it's good to be back at Heritage. Um, I will try to save time for the audience, which means I will just talk faster. Um, China's economy is weakening. Uh, it has 
nothing to do with the U.S.-China trade dispute. It has to do with the longstanding failure to engage in pro-productivity reform. If you heard Riley's intro of me, you said I – the first thing I did when I came to Heritage in 2008 was saying, stop saying China's reforming. It's not reforming, and this is what's going to happen, and I'll document what has happened. Um, on official data, uh, using official GDP, which everyone's in love with, I'm not. I'll give you an alternative in a second. GDP growth was 14.2% in 2007 and 6.6% in 2018. So we have a pretty clear trend. Um, now, you know, the true figure for last year was actually less than 6.6 if you wanted to move beyond official data. You get people saying, well, but the increment to China's GDP is so large. Um, the situation is much worse than indicated by the trend in GDP. Uh, I've been trying to use national wealth as an alternative indicator. The data there aren't very good either. It's hard to – we have a great series. If you if you want to know how the U.S. economy is actually doing, you could use – look at the Federal Reserve series on, on net worth of households or net national wealth. Uh, that's ex- excellent data. It's much more informative than GDP. Um, it's hard to do that for some other countries, especially poor large countries like China. Credit Suisse tries to do it. Their data are not stable. But if you use their data, they say from the end of 2013 to the middle of 2018, Chinese wealth grew 26 percent to near $52 trillion. That is a a four-and-a-half-year period. In the previous five-year period, which included uh, a chunk of the financial crisis, the larger chunk of the financial crisis, Chinese wealth grew 130 percent. It's not my data, right? I mean, you know, you might say I'm biased. I'm trying to find Chinese stagnation wherever I look. Credit Suisse does this entirely independently of me. In fact, I send them nasty emails all the time. 130% in the previous five years, 26% in the last four and a half years. That's more like what's happened to the Chinese economy than their official GDP. If you want a comparison, in the last four and a half years, U.S. wealth has increased 29%, actually faster than China, and to $98 trillion, which roughly fits the Fed's results. Um, so China has a growth problem, and it is understated by official GDP, which I think you all are aware of, but I, I point out how stark it is using wealth calculations. Debt, um, Bureau, uh, Bank of International Settlements, there are two BISs in my life, and I get them confused sometimes. Um, at the end of 1999, China's debt as a percentage of GDP, according to Bank of International Settlements, was 134%. Um, eight years later, uh, it's – Pardon me. Eight years later, yes, it's 142%. So it's gone up eight percentage points as a percent of GDP. That's the end of the, the beginning of the financial crisis. In the period from the end of 2008 to the end of 2017, it goes up 109%. So we get an eight-year period where it goes up eight percentage points, and then an eight-year period where it goes up 109 percentage points. And again, this is not my data. It's not somebody who hates China compiling this data. It's Bank of International Settlements. Um, that is the worse than the worst the worst period, equivalent period for the United States um, since 19, going back to 1952 when data starts is plus 65. We have been – and I completely agree with Riley's opening remarks. We are currently being profligate. We waste money. We borrow money. We, you know, we're going to regret borrowing in the future. We've done it for years. Our worst period of this length is plus 65 points. China's most recent period is plus 109. And we're much richer than them. Um, Official disposable income is about – in China, this is official income – is about one-ninth of the U.S. level. It is far too early in the development process for China for growth to be this slow and for debt to be this high. So if you want to know the state of the Chinese economy, that's the state. It's not anywhere close to being a rich country. It has become highly indebted only in the last nine, ten years, and growth has slowed dramatically over that same period. Why? Um, 
the, Riley touched on a couple of these things. I'm going to be fairly quick. The median age in China is about that of the U.S. now. In two decades, it will be halfway between what the U.S. will be then, which is older, and an even older Japan. Um, I'm bringing this up because it matters a lot to the Chinese economic trajectory and has nothing to do with trade. Right, so when people start talking about how the trade war was going to hurt the Chinese economy, demographics are going to hurt the Chinese economy much, much more than that. Nothing to do with us. Education, uh, the UN's mean years of schooling, the Chinese are about with Brazil and the Dominican Republic at 7.8 years. We're at 13.4. Um, it's not rising quickly any longer. You have clear education discrimination against 550 million rural Chinese. Um, no sign of that changing. Uh, directly related to that, you can't, there's no private ownership of rural land. You cannot make the rural population wealthy, any rural population in any country wealthy if they can't own their most valuable asset. So China has an anchor on the, on the inc personal income, on wealth, on all of its economic development because it won't let rural people own their land. And again, no movement towards change. We have a very powerful Chinese leader. He could make change happen. Doesn't want to. Um, my major issue has to do with the state sector. Uh, in 20 to 25 sectors, you have a suppression of competition because state-owned enterprises can't lose. So this is the, 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 the solution to the mystery of can China innovate? Of course it can innovate, but not in the 20 to 25 sectors where firms are guaranteed market share. Why should they innovate? Right? It's not an accident that the shale revolution was not created by Exxon, Shell, and BP. When you're on top, you don't want change. And that's the situation in major sectors in the Chinese economy, banking, oil, insurance, power, steel, I could go on and on. So part of China's economy will innovate. The part that is protected by the state will not innovate. Innovation, capital, labor, land. That's, those are the sources of growth. They're all in bad shape. Um, so I'm just going to be quick on the unimportance of trade as a compare, uh, in compared to that. Um, I suppose a trade conflict will make China, could make China borrow even faster. That's what's happened so far this year, early this year. They were already borrowing themselves to death before this. The demographic crunch has nothing to do with it. Rural discrimination has nothing to do with it. SOEs is a trade issue, but we're not taking action on that issue. We're taking action on IP and the trade deficit. I'm not defending that. I'm saying that's what we're doing. So we could be trying to get a, a regulatory protection of SOEs, but we're not. Um, Export job losses. Fifteen years ago, China had an expanding labor force, and they really needed exports to to pull people, uh, keep people off the streets. That's no longer the case. The labor force is now shrinking. Quantity of jobs is not a major challenge. Um, not that's also trade is not important to the Chinese economy that way. Uh, if you want to find a place where trade is important, it is a secondary, although interesting matter, which is external finances, not domestic macro. China is now hiding data on on foreign exchange in the banking system, but their official reserves. Um, you know, imply about a $60 billion drain last year, despite a $380 billion goods and services trade surplus with the U.S. In the first quarter, uh, Chinese, the drain accelerated. This is all prior to the hike in tariffs, which goes into effect Saturday, as Riley said. So they're losing foreign exchange prior to the hike in tariffs. If we hike the tariffs and, say, put a 10% with some exclusion tariff on the $300 billion tranche, in July, the drain's going to shoot past $100 billion annually, well past. So $60 billion last year, it's going to go way past $100 billion. China can afford that, but it pressures the renminbi. And if you follow China, you know that the Chinese do not like pressure on their currency. There's been screeching about that in Chinese media. You know, if you short the renminbi, you'll be sorry. You will feel unbelievable pain. Just, media has become very difficult to read in the past couple of weeks, Chinese media, American media too. Um, 
Renminbi asset holders also don't like outflow of income because they feel like the possibility of the renminbi being devalued rises. So you have a sense where China, the U.S. can cause serious balance of payments problems for the Chinese. We we can't have balance of payments problems. The dollar is a hard currency. One implication, and now I'm almost done, one implication will be that if we do that, if we take those trade actions and sustain them, the BRI will be comatose for an indefinite period. The BRI is funded by American consumers. We stop buying Chinese goods, there's no BRI, except pretend BRI, which, you know, that will continue. Um, so summation, Chinese long-term economic problems concern an enormous amount of wasted capital, premature aging due to their demographic policies, and, and Xi Jinping's clear antipathy, fear of disruptive uh, and necessary domestic policy. Um, on short term, in the short term, it's vulnerable to foreign exchange pressure from the United States. That doesn't matter to China's long-term economic prosperity. Uh, Ambassador Allen. That is great. I'm never going to speak after Derek's sisters again. Uh, that was really wonderful. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's wonderful uh, to be here. The, the kind of perspective I'm going to give is a little bit different. Um, about a year ago, President Xi and President Trump met in Buenos Aires, and at around that same time, we started the cycle of tariffs and intensive uh, negotiations. Uh, the two gentlemen, the two leaders, are expected to meet again uh, in Osaka, uh, probably on June 29. And so what I wanted to do today was to provide a little bit of a scorecard. Where are we? What progress has been made? What, what has been the cost? So I think on the positive side, um, a, a good number of things have happened within the Chinese economy that um, benefit American and uh, companies and other uh, China's trading partners. Uh, little noted in the press here, but the Chinese have reduced tariffs on some 3,700 product lines, including many lines that are important to foreign traders like automo automotive and uh, um, cosmetics. There's been a, a reduction of tax, uh, a reduction of the VAT. There's been uh, an elimination of some equity cap restrictions, uh, and uh, a reduction of um, barriers uh, to investment uh, in uh, China. There's been a number of approvals, important approvals, in the financial services sector. And uh, at least formally, uh, legally, they've banned forced uh, technology transfer. Um, uh, by uh, introducing a negative list um, for foreign direct investment, uh, they've opened up uh, larger areas uh, to uh, for American and, and foreign investment. I agree with Derek's comments on SOEs, uh, and I think that that's the litmus test here, wh whether or not they will open up those. But let me uh, just summarize and say, that the Chinese have made some um, uh, significant market openings, little noted in the United States, but noted elsewhere. Uh, and I think that the president needs to be given credit uh, for uh, that, for applying the, the tariffs and the pressure uh, to get this. These are things that we've had negotiated for a long time. And finally, uh, we're seeing some um, uh, some progress. Uh, but there is a downside or a price, and I'd like to divide this into short term uh, and into long term. Over the shorter term, uh, U.S. exports uh, to China were down 7% in 2018 over 2017. Uh, overall, Chinese uh, uh, imports 
increased 10%. And uh, uh, what we are seeing, uh, particularly in the high technology area, is that uh, European and Japanese competitors are uh, uh, taking market share from American companies. Agricultural exports from the United States are significantly down. I was startled uh, that uh, Iowa exports to China, for example, were down 50%. And many American uh, soybean farmers are finding it un, un, they're unable to plant uh, with uh, current uh, prices. On the services side, uh, Chinese travel to the U.S. Uh, last year was down 5.7% Chinese travel overall uh, globally. Outbound Chinese travel was up 13.5%. And Chinese investment uh, to the U.S. is down. This is really Derek's uh, area of greatest expertise. So I, the number I, I've been using is between 60 and 80% down. And that's very, very significant. Now, many in Washington are okay with that. They're they don't mind seeing this decoupling or, or fall off on of Chinese investment. Uh, but I would argue that there's a tremendous opportunity cost, uh, particularly in the poorer parts of the country. And I would submit to you uh, Ballard uh, uh, County, uh, Kentucky, one of the poorest counties in, in uh, the country, recently added 500 jobs as a result of Chinese investment in fish farming and in a paper mill. And I would submit to you again, uh, Forest City, Arkansas, where uh, 800 new jobs are planned, but that uh, plan, uh, in a yarn production facility. But those jobs are on hold since the, the uh, tariff tit for tat uh, began. Uh, so I, I think it's okay to put that on, on, on the downside. The administration's um, use of more aggressive export controls and investment restrictions are a little bit outside of the trade area, but you know, they're very closely uh, related. Uh, so let me notice, note uh, that on the CFIUS side, uh, uh, that uh, the changes in the law has led to at least three forced uh, divestments, one grinder, the second uh, patients like me, and the third uh, health tell. And so I think that there's an economic loss there if there's forced disinvestment. On the export control side, which is a different but, re again, related area, uh, would note uh, that U.S. Uh, suppliers uh, to Fujian Jinhua, uh, ZTE and Huawei have absolutely been affected and uh, uh, that uh, American tech competitors, that is the European and the Japanese companies that are, are, are competing with America across the world, are in the door immediately uh, once uh, the export controls are, are, are signed. Um, are, are put into law. So I would argue that the Chinese government response uh, to U.S. moves has been pretty careful, calibrated, and conservative until recently, and that is changing. Um, MOFCOM, uh, the Ministry of Commerce of China, has always said that they reserve the right to use, quote-unquote, qualitative measures against American investors uh, in China and we may or maybe not uh, see that beginning uh, to happen. So the best uh, statistical evidence is uh, from the uh, American Chamber of Commerce, which released a uh, survey last week. 47% um, of their members said uh, that on top of the tariffs, so those are tariffs going both ways, 
that they uh, faced measures such as slower customs clearance, more inspections, and delayed approval for licenses. So that's nearly half of the American investors that responded to the survey. Approximately one-third said uh, that they were canceling or delaying further investments in China. And 40% of the American uh, members of the American Chamber of Commerce uh, in China uh, said that they were relocating manufacturing uh, from China to a third uh, country, possibly back to the United States, but that would be in a very, very small minority, mostly Vietnam, perhaps Mexico, maybe Cambodia, Sri Lanka, wherever. Um, So um, uh, let's see. Uh, so over the short term, I, I, I think that there has been a considerable cost uh, to the United States, uh, to American companies, American farmers, American workers, American uh, ranchers. Uh, but I worry much more about the long term uh, rather than uh, the short term. So as I look at the situation right now and the uh, possibility that, as Riley mentioned, additional tariffs might come into play. Well, they will come into play on June 1. And then the the fourth tier might come into play uh, uh, later in the summer. As I look at that, I uh, am very concerned. And so let me share those concerns with you of of longer-term concerns. The first one is that nationalism is rising in China. There's no doubt about that. And uh, that uh, could be used to very ill effect against uh, American uh, brands and American companies. There are already, while there's a lot of cooler heads within the Chinese government who's trying to tamp down a nationalistic response to this, um, there are calls uh, for boycotts uh, and other campaigns. In total, American branded products, there's probably, uh, there's about $190 billion worth of exports, but about $600 billion worth of sales in China, including sales made in uh, in China, Taiwan, wherever, around uh, the world. Um, but if there are calls uh, for boycotts, uh, and I, I, I don't think that we're too far away from that, it's already appearing in social media, then the impact uh, will be uh, uh, considerable. Um, uh, and uh, um, European and Japanese companies will be right there to pick up uh, the slack. There are relatively few areas, even in high tech, where we have an, uh, a monopoly uh, or a monopsony uh, uh, position. So I am concerned that farmers are potentially the greatest victims here. Um, recall, please, uh, 1972 uh, with uh, the Nixon shock of uh, embargoing of soybeans uh, to Japan. The rational response of the Japanese was to invest very heavily uh, in uh, Brazil. Uh, to have independent bases of soybeans. And no doubt, uh, while I don't have statistical proof of this, uh, the Chinese are developing alternative long-term support, uh, um, supply bases, probably in Brazil, Russia, and uh, in Ukraine. And again, I don't have evidence of that, but that would be a, a natural uh, re- response. Um, the American agricultural economy is predicated on producing for a global uh, population, an expanding global po- We produce far too many calories for us to use economically. It has to be. <laughs> uh, it, it, it has to be exported. And the entire American agricultural economy is predicated on a, a global market, despite uh, Derek's very, very good efforts uh, here. 
Um, so on qualitative measures, I think that we must be respectful uh, of the Chinese uh, and, uh, and, and mindful. Uh, that, uh, they are, uh, they do not operate within the rule of law, uh, boundaries, and they can create, a uh, considerable amount of, uh, uh, problems for American companies. And I, I wouldn't say necessarily that that's the Chinese government per se, uh, just individual Chinese bureaucrats would be, who are very risk adverse, would have a hard time, um, um, approving American, uh, applications and, uh, whatnot. Um, even if it wasn't an official government policy. And I think that the American Chamber of Commerce survey demonstrates that. Uh, on the high tech side, I am also very concerned. Um, point of fact, uh, United States graduates 650,000 STEM, uh, uh, engineers, uh, scientists a, a year. A third of them are foreigners, so about 400,000 uh, Americans. China graduates 1.8 million, uh, STEM graduates a year. And so I think it is, uh, not inappropriate, uh, to be, uh, concerned about, uh, over the longer term, how our two tech sectors are going to intermesh. Um, so, um, uh, let me just end up with a quote from, uh, Rob Atkinson. I, I, Rob is in town, uh, he runs the ITIF, the, in, uh, Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, and generally I think a, a real, real good, uh, scholar of this stuff, and he estimates that, um, uh, if, uh, the tariffs fully go in, uh, to effect that U.S. firms could lose between 14 and 56 billion dollars in export sales over five years, threatening 800,000 to 774,000, uh, jobs. And, uh, I think that, uh, that's, uh, something that we should, uh, ponder. So let me, uh, end and say, Tariffs are uh, an appropriate uh, means to an end, but they cannot be the end. Uh, if tariffs are the end of uh, or the, the objective, uh, then we're going to pay a very high price. Um, the two presidents uh, will be meeting in uh, approximately a little bit less than a month. And let us hope uh, that their diplomats and statesmen uh, can get together to resolve uh, the structural issues as identified in the 301 uh, so that uh, the trading relationship can back, get back to normal so that American workers, companies, farmers, and ranchers can benefit from the growth uh, that will be derived uh, from China over the next 10 years. Uh, thank you. Um, I think uh, according to the, the AmCham uh, China survey you mentioned, um, good statistics, statistics, by the way, on the views of that businesses actually operating in China – um, I think something like 50% would even prefer to just simply go back to the status quo of what we had two years ago uh, when we, because we've gotten just to this point. Um, finally, uh, our last guest, Wayne Morrison, if you will. Okay. Thanks so much, Riley, and uh, great to be on this panel with um, my esteemed colleagues. Um, so I was asked to focus more on the trade aspect, the trade relationship part of it, part of it because Derek didn't want to do it. I think he's getting so tired of working on it, and I don't blame him. So um, – I've been working on China trade issues since 1988. So I was transferred to the trade section, and my boss said, do you want to work on China because nobody's interested in China? I'm like, oh, okay. So now it seems like that's changed. Everybody seems to be very interested in China. And uh, I, I do agree a lot with what Derek said. You know, when China got into the WTO, I remember where these negotiations were going. That was like a really big deal. And there were tremendous expectations that China was going to not just open up its economy 
to U.S. trade and investment, but also uh, transfer more into a market-based economy within around 15 years. And it seemed like even the Chinese were saying that. And and after a couple of years, we saw China make some progress in the WTO and U.S. trade investment with China really did uh, increase a lot. There were, there were a lot of positives, uh, but China didn't really be- begin that transition to a free market economy. And in, in some extent, around 2006, they sort of went backwards with greater state intervention. Though there's definitely a lot of disappointment vis-a-vis China, a lot of frustration. And for the members of Congress who I work for, um, there is definitely tons of frustration with China, and it has been for many years. So this is definitely like a huge issue. And where we're going on this is really not clear yet. So I'll give you a little bit my perspective. And this is my perspective, by the way, not that of CRS. I only speak for myself. Um, I'm going to be a little bit more critical (laughs) of the Trump administration's approach to this issue, uh, and partly because I'm looking at the big picture on trade, not just China trade, because I know there's a lot of frustration with it, but the sort of big picture on the trade issue. So I'm going to start with the with the beginning of the Section 301 case, which, which they launched in 2017, right? And I was kind of surprised that they started that because when the U.S. Uh, helped form the WTO, the WTO created this uh, dispute settlement system that, that was the U.S. idea because we felt that there wasn't a strong system to adjudicate problems. And when the WTO went into creation in 1995, uh, the U.S. basically said, well, we're going to use Section 301 anymore. We were going to through, go through that WTO process. So when the administration decided to launch this Section 301 case, I was a little surprised by it, a little, little taken back. But they brought up some very, very important issues, which are intellectual property, innovation policies, and those are very important issues to the U.S. economy. Now, I would have preferred they have brought all the issues to the WTO. They actually brought one, unfair license, unfair technology licensing requirements. They did take one, so there were four issues. But the other two of the other issues, which are very important, forced technology transfer, cyber theft of U.S. trade circuits, those are huge problems, right? So I thought, like, okay, so they're going to go sort of rogue and use the Section 301 uh, to deal with China. Um, however, uh, in March uh, 2018, when President Trump made his announcement that he was going to uh, proceed with the Section 301 case, and he talked about the IPR issues, he sort of really – went all over the place and talked about all sorts of issues regarding China, right? So then it became the trade deficit with China, which for some reason President Trump never can get right. I don't know why, but he always says it's 500 and 504 billion. I don't know why he can't get that right. But he, he mentioned that. So it was the largest trade deficit in the history of mankind, right? I don't know if that's true. But um, he mentioned that. Then he talked about reciprocity and how we needed to have reciprocity with China. And he mentioned the trade deficit. We got, he was a vast president, she to reduce that by a hundred billion dollars. So to me, he sort of like went way off the cuff on that. And then what does he do then? Does he continue to talk about China? No. He goes on to attack practically every major trading partner. He attacks the European Union on their trade policy. He attacks Japan on their trade policy. Then he goes on and attacks the WTO, right? So it's just this whole list of grievances that he has on that. And it's kind of interesting because then later on, um, Lighthizer was, spoke and he said, yeah, IPR is a big issue. And then, uh, Commerce Secretary Ross said, yeah, IPR is a big issue. So I, I wish that, that, that the Trump administration had stayed focused on, on the IPR issues because those are very important, right? So they did decide to, to, uh, proceed. And, uh, as Craig said, because there's been so much frustration, issues that have been up for years and years never really solved and resolved. So let's get tough with the Chinese. Let's threaten to hit them with tariffs, right? So I was just thinking this morning, this is May, 
And I remember what happened last year in May. Uh, the United States and China issued a, a joint statement, and they stated that they had come to some sort of agreement or accommodation. And then uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin went on Fox TV, and he said that uh, well, well, there's a ceasefire in the trade war, right? And China's going to make significant purchases of uh, uh, natural gas and agriculture products. And so everybody thought, well, this issue was resolved, right? But then uh, about 10 days later, the U.S. Trade Representative announced that they were going to go ahead and, uh, and release the list of, uh, of, of uh, increased tariffs against China, right? So as you can imagine, that absolutely enraged the Chinese. They re it really did. I mean, the, the rhetoric that came out of the, the government was, was, was pretty harsh on that, right? And so they did – so that's what they did. So they um, have proceeded to now – Imposed uh, tariffs against China, and they, uh, basically they're going to—they're talking about tariffs on all products. And by the way, I went out and bought my iPhone last December because I knew this was going to happen. So, um, so we've seen this going on, and so um, it makes you sort of wonder where the administration is going on this, right? So everybody thought like, well, we're going to have an agreement in uh, in February or maybe in March, and that didn't happen. And then May comes around, and, and again, it doesn't happen. And in fact, all of a sudden, things fell apart. Like, what happened, right? So President Trump says that the, that the Chinese have sort of stepped back on the agreement, right, that they had pulled back on all these issues. And, of course, the, the administration has re never really outlined what these issues are per se. I mean, there's been some that have been listed by the USTR after some of their meetings with China. And again, it's sort of like I, I keep wondering, like, Where's the, where do these things begin and where they end? So first it was uh, IPR and innovation issues. Then it was the trade deficit. Then it was like we want China to buy significant amounts of U.S. goods and services. And then uh, then they brought in the currency issue and then uh, China's uh, industrial policies. Uh, and then we had to have some sort of enforcement mechanism where we would decide whether China agreed – whether had China had complied with the agreement – and if they didn't, we could slap on tariffs again. Uh, and then China couldn't do anything about it. They couldn't slap us back, right? So I began to wonder, like, uh, what are they really trying to accomplish, right? Because I keep asking people, what's in it for China? Uh, usually these kind of agreements that both sides get something, right? And uh, I'm not quite sure what the Chinese are getting. I mean, obviously, they'd like to write a big check, just say, leave us alone. Um, but I'm not sure that that's quite going to happen. And so when uh, Trump said that, well, we haven't reached an agreement, the Chinese reneged on what they promised, you know, I'm going to increase tariffs by an uh, increase from uh, 10 to 20 percent on 200 billion, and then we're also going to hit them on 300 billion and the rest, right? Again, I began to wonder, like, do they re really want an agreement? Uh, and some of the things, like we're not supposed to read uh, tweets that Trump says on trade because it gives us, gives us heartburn, right? But he said, you know, on May 11th, that China felt that they were being beaten so badly, right? And then made other comments like, well, they really want Sleepy Joe Biden as president. So then, so then I began to wonder, is this now become part of the 2020 election? Like, does this make it impossible now for any kind of meaningful agreement to be reached? Um, and I'm, and I share, you know, Craig, your, your concern about the future because you mentioned the 2018 data. But if you look at what's gone on from January to March, uh, our import from China are down 30%, and their imports from us are down 37%. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty significant. 
How long is that going to go on? Uh, nobody knows. Um, I think that um, there is a big concern that the administration is not out just to sort of like get this great agreement with, with China, but in fact uh, seeking to decouple the entire economic relationship with China. And I'm wondering if that's not true, right? It seems like almost every week they're sort of uh, issuing new statements uh, uh, on China, you know, the, the Huawei statement, the uh, announcement on um, on uh, uh, ICT products, you know, where we would sort of like decouple completely on ICT. I mean, we depend very heavily on China for those products. I mean, where are we going to get them from, right? And um, what's going to happen, right, on that? Now, what I find kind of interesting is when the USTR said, well, we're going to issue a list of all these, of the rest of the products we're going to hit, but we're going to exclude some products. And for some reason, they mentioned uh, rare earth elements. Like, I don't know why they would do that, right? And the Chinese press immediately picked up on that. Like, we dominate the rare earth uh, markets. We produce most of it, and we can hit the United States really hard on that. I don't know why they would even give them this. Make them look it up in the tariff schedule, right? Don't just put it down on a piece of paper like that. So I'm wondering if this is part of a bigger economic strategy. And I think it's not just about China, see? It's not just about China. These issues of trade deficits and reciprocity do not just apply to China. So even if they get some sort of agreement with China, they're going to go after other countries too, right? And we're seeing this happen, right? We saw the Section 232 investigation of the national security aspects of auto trade. I mean, really? It's national security and cars, right? And the president is sort of hinting that they could impose trade restrictions unless they reach a trade agreement with other countries, right? So they've left left that out there. And I saw that today Peter Navarro has a letter to the editor, right? And basically he's promoting his sort of like trade reciprocity uh, bill that's in Congress right now. And what they want to do is give uh, the president even more power to impose tariffs against other countries – and it would be against any country that had a tariff that was greater than ours. And not just tariff, but let's say a quota as well, right? And it would give the president the authority to increase tariffs on any country that didn't give us reciprocity on trade. So I'm very concerned about that. It's not just about China. It's about other countries. I'm very concerned about us going against the WTO, right, which we helped create, um, which we supported, which really has given great benefits uh, to the country. And um, I think that uh, since I'm in the Heritage Foundation, I'll end, with a, I'll end with a quote by Ronald Reagan, if you don't mind. So Ronald Reagan in 1987, he gave a speech uh, to the workers at Harley-Davidson. Um, and he was talking about trade agreements, and he said, America does best when America sticks to his word. And then he went on to say, and American workers can take on the best in the world anytime, anyplace, anywhere. And I think that we, we sort of have to move away from this, this narrative that America has been victimized by all these countries. Everywhere Trump goes, everybody's been taking advantage of us. And, uh, you know, presidents in the past have sold us out and, and et cetera. I think the U.S. has really benefited from the global trading system. Um, I think it's, it's kind of a shame that when we think that increasing tariffs somehow makes us better off. Uh, and ta- tariffs are a tax that we are all going to pay for. And it is going to hurt our economy. Uh, the OECD came up with a study recently, and they're talking about uh, a 0.9% decrease, percentage point decrease in the U.S. economy and economic growth um, 
by 2021. I mean, that's a significant amount, right? And the losses will be bigger for China, of course. And by the way, all of the supply chains, all of these corporations and companies all around the world, they're not going to appreciate the U.S. driving down economic growth over this trade war, right? Now, of course, if, it, if a trade agreement was reached, we'll say no blood, no foul. Everybody will be happy, right? But to me, what we ought to be doing is making sure that we put China in a position of not losing face, where they actually have some things to gain, where we can give credibility to the economic reformers in China, because a lot of these reforms that we're asking for are very beneficial for China as well. So this this should be a win-win. But President Trump shouldn't be going around saying we got him over a barrel and, and you know, et cetera. So I'll end there. Thank you. Thank you, Wayne. Uh, at the end there, it almost it almost sounded like you're advocating for a comparative advantage. Yeah, it's just an old concept. <laughs> um, <clears throat> we're going to go into questions and answers. Um, I'm going to take the um, the benefit of the moderator to give the first ask the first question. Um, but when we do start going around the room, uh, wait for the mic, introduce yourself, and ask a question. If you start grandstanding or if you start rambling, I'm going to cut you off and move on to the next person. So um, now, you know, you, when you mentioned the WTO and, and Derek, you've mentioned reforms. Um, certainly, what the White House is trying to do right now is at least from the legal process, get major reforms out of China um, in, in certain degrees. Not not everything, of course, but uh, to a certain degree. And so uh, the last, I think the last significant reform we really saw out of China was through its ascension into the WTO. Um, one argument for why it agreed to WTO agreements and for reform at that time was because China's economy at that time wasn't exactly doing so well. Um, can we expect in as as China's economy slows for that for that kind of reemerge maybe a slow economy means more reform or can we are we just should we not expect something like that under the current leadership in Beijing in 2008-9 the chinese got hit by the layman shock like everybody else uh, their response uh, was hardly reform it was to pump an enormous amount of credit out through state banks which also went just got tossed down the drain um, because there was no there was no it was countercyclical lending so there was no use for the money other than to keep firms in business that should have gone out of business and there's a social stability argument we don't want all those people okay fine I understand that but China was under stress much more stress than they're under right now and they chose a statist expansion we have Xi Jinping has been in his party office his government office now for six years his party office for six and a half he has no track record at all in the current office or before this of pro-market economic reform other than putting his finger in the wind when he was younger and going along with what was being done elsewhere. None. Neither does Liu He. So you're expecting a China to, China to act like it did 20 years ago. But 10 years ago, it didn't act like this. And five years ago, not you, like you're really expecting it, but you know, that argument. And five years ago, it didn't act like this. Uh, I don't think it's reasonable for the United States to think we can make China undertake important economic reforms that Xi Jinping obviously sees as not in his interest because he could have undertaken them at any point up to now. Um, <clears throat> I don't think that's a reason to stop pressuring the Chinese. We have to pursue our own interests. Our goal should not be to improve Chinese economic policy. It should be to improve the outcome for the United States. And part of my my well, a main point I was trying to make in my talk was the Chinese are going to be have been doing the wrong thing for a long time, and they're very likely to continue to do the wrong thing. And hoping for them to do the right thing is not a realistic expectation for the trade conflict, whether you're in favor of it or against it. 
Yeah, um, well, um, I think that the record shows over the last 40 years that those in charge of the Chinese macroeconomy have been incredibly successful and effective at managing the Chinese uh, economy from uh, per capita income of 200 uh, in 1979 to about 10,000 uh, today. This is a, 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 a history of growth uh, of the type that the world has never seen before, and I don't think that they've lost all their mojo. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, in, I'm going to uh, disagree with, with Derek here, uh, that uh, they have faced many crises uh, before, and they've managed them extremely well. Um, uh, in 2008, uh, many of the high-tech companies uh, that uh, are really uh, taking on the world right now didn't exist in China. Uh, so market reform has proceeded uh, despite – uh, the uh, strong, uh, d- despite the ideological and and other constraints uh, that they have, I would argue that as we look at the 301, uh, that all of the items articulated that um, Wayne articulated in the 301, or every single one, are in China's interest. And if China is to escape the middle income trap, it would do so uh, by uh, implementing uh, the uh, reforms similar to those articulated in the 301, particularly with regard to state-owned enterprises. They, they must introduce more competition into the state-owned enterprise uh, sector uh, to obtain larger growth. But that is very much in their interest. There is a strong constituency for reform uh, in China, uh, and I think that uh, we were close to an agreement a month ago. Um, we were close to a bilateral investment treaty uh, two years ago. Uh, this is not out of sight, uh, even though uh, in the press it, it, it may appear that way. And it is in America's interest, it is in our national interest to try and get there, uh, to try and resolve these structural issues. Um, I would only add that um, if the Chinese view the U.S. is, quote, out to get them, out to undermine their economy, right, and weaken them, I fear that there'll just be more government intervention in the economy, that they'll, they're sort of like, well, we got to all, you know, get the wagons in a circle and, you know, fight this menace, et cetera, et cetera, and the government's got to be the head of this, right? I don't want to push China in, the, in, the, in that direction, right? We definitely want to get them to reform. I definitely think that, you know, we definitely got the stick approach, but I definitely think we need we need also a carrot approach. Right? I mean, I hate to keep crying about TPP, you know, as many economists have, but I felt that at that time when the U.S. was leading the TPP, the Chinese were very nervous about that because they felt that they would lose competitiveness if they were left out of that agreement. And toward the end of the administration's, Obama administration's term, the Chinese were saying like, hey, Keep us informed. We're interested. I mean, to me, that was quite extraordinary, right? It would have been so much nicer to bring them in willingly, right, than try to beat them with the stick, right? So I definitely agree with what you said. The bit was a, was a very uh, important agreement. I don't think we should have walked away from that. Um, and so as long as we have, like, again, these, these sort of uh, carrots that go along with the sticks, to me, it's going to be do more to encourage uh, reform in China. All right. Uh, questions? <clears throat> One all the way in the back there. I just had a quick question about 5G and how China's advantage in that technology kind of uh, 
impacts this discussion? Um, I disagree that China has an advantage in the technology. It does have an advantage in the rollout because Huawei has outcompeted Ericsson and Nokia. And as we know, because there's a lot of chatter about this in Washington, there's no direct U.S. competitor in equipment supply. Um, the technology, though, uh, let me make a prediction rather than do anything else. Within three years, 5G will be seen as increasingly software-driven. Not now, not next year, not the year after. Within three years, five years, will be seen as increasingly software-driven. Software is in a field that is dominated by competition and innovation, not by scale, and the Chinese will lose. In other words, they will fall behind progressively in 5G technology. Does that mean that Huawei won't supply a lot of the world with cheap, decent products? Yes, they will. But the technology side, I don't agree the Chinese are ahead, hence the problem with Huawei being dependent on U.S. products um, to whatever extent it might be. And they will be increasingly behind because 5G will move from a hardware-driven environment to a software-driven environment. And I might be wrong about the three years. It might be four. But that's the time frame we're talking about. Um, just uh, add uh, that uh, 5G um, shares um, all, many of the characteristics uh, that were addressed in the 301 submission. Certainly subsidies, intellectual property right, forced technology transfer, uh, state-owned uh, e enterprise, uh, and, and cyber. And those are the five major issues that were identified in the 301. Um, uh, so, uh, in in my view, um, this is a complex, uh, extremely complex issue. How do we deal uh, with the Chinese uh, to create a more conducive global uh, environment uh, for innovation? And right now, that's uh, perhaps it's very difficult, if not impossible, because of the five issues. Uh, identified in uh, the 301. And that's why, in, at least in my view, it would be wonderful if we could you know, focus on the original complaint, uh, compl series of complaints within the 301 and address them rather than uh, throwing in national security and, and a lot of other things into the debate. Uh, we're never going to get to an agreement if we keep, uh, as, as Wayne intima intimated, moving the goalposts and expanding and expanding and expanding. If we could get to an agreement on the 301, uh, that would form a, a, a foundation by which the rest of the relationship uh, could perhaps come into a little bit uh, more orderly uh, um, and smoother um, uh, future. Right now, um, that uh, looks a little bit far off, uh, but it's not impossible. Um, I would just add that there seems to be a growing trend toward looking for possible China threats to, to the United States. And I'm, I'm sure that anything that has to do with technology, there are always going to be those kind of concerns, right? But I guess the Chinese also must be concerned about U.S. technology in China. So I think to me there's like a very there's a very the serious problem when when countries can't trust each other and there are issues of technology and whether that can be hacked in, into and what have you. Uh, I, I was just amazed to see debate going on in Congress uh, about uh, prohibiting uh, the Chinese state-owned enterprises from supplying uh, subway cars to the Washington Metro, right? Because it was a concern that they have cameras and they could be used to spy on people on the way to the White House. And and someone said, well, the trains also go under the Pentagon. And, you know, I'm like, I remember a few years before that, there was concern because uh, 
uh, a Chinese investment company uh, was buying Smithfield ham, right? And that there was a concern that that had national security. So it seems to me that there has to be sort of like a rational discussion and evidence, right? If the administration is going to say that Huawei is, it has been given money by state security in China, et cetera, it's controlled, it's owned, whatever, then they really need to put that evidence uh, forward so that, you know, everybody can judge this, what, what is a threat and, and what is really not, right? I don't really think that we want to get carried away. I mean, I grew up in the Cold War, right? And, and this kind of rhetoric that I remember from that time as a kid. Let's take a couple questions. Um, let's go here. Hi there. Jay Jang with uh, Rich Foyer Anderson. I really appreciated the, the discussion around this. So I wanted to frame my question around what I see uh, as the U.S.'s role in the global economy and what I see as sort of the eroding of that. You know, I'm looking at a couple different things. Um, I'm worried about the bifurcation, you know, starting out with the Internet, you know, the Great Firewall, but that extending to alternate currency systems, the challenging of the U.S. dollar as a central reserve currency. Uh, and, you know, you look at things where big technology companies now in China, like Alibaba and WeChat, and you really see technology. Right. So, you know, got five other people want to sure. Ask the concern, you know, it, the concern is, are you worried about alternate payment systems? Is that something we should be worried about, uh, especially, you know, things with, um, you know, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative? You know, should we be trying to stop that? Hi, I'm Mark Buckham from the National War College. <clears throat> My question is about the relationship between uh, China's slowing growth and its uh, defense spending. Are we seeing any relationship? Are we seeing a decline in defense spending? Uh, or is defense spending doing anything to impact uh, China's growth? I think that's someone in the back. Gentleman with a bow tie. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Leon Peace. Uh, my question is, uh, what is the um, impact, if any, of uh, trade-based money laundering uh, on the Chinese account on the Chinese economy? All right. So we have three questions. The first one is sort of a, a bifurcation of payments. Are we going to have competition in just the way that we compete? I guess through currencies or fintech or other types of payment systems. Second one, slowing growth, defense spending. What's the correlation? And the third one is trade-based money laundering. Can I just give data? Um, the first question on payment systems is interesting. There's no evidence at all of the fraying of the dollar's role in the global currency. And in fact, the recent data shows the yuan's role, internationalization of the yuan has flagged, uh, unless you count Hong Kong. Um, however, payment systems are quite a different issue. So I, I don't think the question, I think the questioner knows this, but for everybody else, um, everybody can be using dollars in protected payment systems. So the dollar is still the world's reserve currency, but people's use of the dollar is shielded from U.S. sanctions. And that is a drawback to applying – I am very anti-China. It is a drawback to applying sanctions too frequently, that people will create systems to still use U.S. dollars because nobody wants another currency, but do it in a way that we cannot monitor uh, to, in, in order to be able to respond. That is sort of related to trade-based money laundering. It's not really related. The issue on trade-based money laundering is – uh, tied to what I said about confidence in the currency. The Chinese have a balance of payments problem, and it's driven partly by objective factors, but partly by subjective feelings of RMB asset holders. Um, and the way they respond to Chinese policies they don't like, for example, in 2014, when we, the Chinese reform effort was revealed to be a sham, 
is they send money out of the country in huge amounts. And some of that is trade connected. So uh, I read trade-based money laundering as an expression of RMB asset holders. They don't want to be involved in China anymore. Um, and that we're, we continue to see that. China runs a, a large current account surplus, um, but it is offset by ca- to a large extent by capital outflows. And you know now it's more than offset by capital outflows. That's a vote of confidence. Sometimes that is done through money laundering through trade. Um, and then the last question on defense spending, look, you know the problem here. We don't have good numbers on Chinese defense spending. Uh, if we take the number, you know, I've done some statistical filtering of the available official numbers. I don't know that that helps at all. It appears that internal security spending is rising considerably faster than defense spending. That may be wrong. Um, obviously, slower growth means, you know, whatever your level of defense spending is more, is more of a strain. Uh, I think the, the, the footprint of the Xi Jinping government so far is clearly that internal security matters a lot more than growth. So I think other, other subsidies, other government actions will be cut before internal security spending is cut. Yeah, I, I think that the bifurcation question is really uh, interesting, um, particularly over the longer term, particularly with regard to cyber. Um, and uh, the world is already bifurcated Be- behind the Chinese Great Wall. It's very difficult to do business. And I think that that's one of the very legitimate concerns within the 301. The New York Times, Washington Post should be able to uh, to sell behind, behind the Great Wall, and they're not able to uh, – uh, to now. So it's something, uh, very interesting to watch. Uh, Google just withdrew Android software from, uh, Huawei. And so let us see, will they come out with another operating system or will they fail? And one of the great dramas over the next couple of months to look at. I would say on defense spending, uh, Derek is of course right that we don't have, uh, clear numbers, but, uh, there is, uh, our, certainly our military planners see vast growth, uh, within Chinese military capabilities, both quantitative, quantitatively and qualitatively. So all indicators uh, there are uh, that the Chinese are uh, doubling down on their uh, defense uh, spending. The American military is uh, quite respectful of uh, the Chinese military. And I think that our ability to uh, act un- unencumbered, unimpeded, un- uh, not um, without worrying about the Chinese uh, within the first island chain is is gone. Um, it's becoming much more competitive uh, uh, in that space uh, as a result of massive Chinese investment. And on trade-based money laundering, I would say there's an ancient history here uh, going back many, many years. Um, uh, the Chinese uh, uh, have... Uh, uh, been um, uh, very expert at trade-based money laundering for a long, long time. I would say that um, SAFE, uh, the State Administration of Foreign Exchange, has recently clamped down on that. And that's one of the reasons why the behind the drop of uh, Chinese investment into the United States in 2018 is the SAFE, um, um, uh, new SAFE restrictions. Um uh, so they're trying to control that, but good luck um, because there's a lot of money that probably wishes to leave China and it probably will find a way. Um, I'll just add a few comments. Um, on the dual payment issue, I, I think that your broader question really has to do with these competing systems, competing economies, U.S. and, and China. And there's a lot of concern like, well, how do we – how do we deal with a rising China? Like, do we have to confront them, right? What do we do, right? Do we try to stop them? Do we try to stop the Belt and Road Initiative? You know, it's just a threat to us, et cetera. 
And I think that the biggest thing that we can do is really to sort of like maintain our tradition, traditional role as supporter of the multilateral trading system and free trade. I mean, to me, it's quite shocking to see President Xi going around and saying the Chinese economic system is one that other countries can emulate. I mean, that to me is pretty shocking that he would say that. And also sort of like putting on the white hat that the U.S. used to wear of the like the defender of free trade around the world, right? President Trump taking this more of a America first protectionist policy, that to me doesn't really provide the U.S. with a lot of soft power. If every agreement that we have has to benefit us more than other countries. And President Xi is very good to say, well, we have this Belt and Road, you know, win-win, et cetera, et cetera, right? It gives them some soft power. We have to have a narrative that is just as effective. And I think, like, you know, main, promoting freedom, rule and law, you know, our traditional values, that this really our main focus is, is what we should do. Now, I can't um, respond on the defense issue, but I will tell you this. The Chinese are smart in the sense that seeing a slowing economy, they're spending a ton of money on research and development. And why is that? Because they see innovation as the key for their economic development. And they're number two after the United States. So that probably has a lot of defense um, implications as well. But if the Chinese can become innovators, so they can be, right? But if, if their economic system, political system can be reformed, China could be a, a huge economic power. But if they can't, I don't think they – I think they will begin to suffer uh, some serious economic decline. All right. Last 30 seconds. One more question. One, well, real quick, one more. <laughs> Super quick. I work on U.S.-Mongolia relations, and what caught my attention, uh, you had mentioned uh, Professor Scissors, uh, was uh, the rural disparities. And I'm curious specifically if there's any data points in Inner Mongolia, Xinjiang, these more ethnically mixed uh, frontier provinces of China, where, where's the economy these days? And just because Rare Earth was mentioned, the World Bank confirmed uh, that 10 times the uh, previous known reserves are now uh, under the ground in Mongolia. So, uh, Yeah, I think the Rare Earth story is complete nonsense from top to bottom, and the U.S. press should be taken out and shot for propagating it <laughs> yesterday. Um, but uh, so I'll stop there on the Rare Earth. We don't have good information. We don't have good data on, on how Xinjiang and Tibet are doing because it's very politically sensitive. Inner Mongolia, less politically sensitive. That province wildly exaggerated its economic performance for years. Chinese routinely or periodically do these national census where they usually find more GDP because it's underreported, right? They're off-market transactions. Inner Mongolia is one of the three provinces that had to find less because they lied so much. Um, so, I mean, really, I, I don't – we know the data for Xinjiang and Tibet are falsified. My guess is that Inner Mongolia is struggling economically, but – that's a guess. Um, best I can do. Sorry. I would just add that Belt and Road Initiative, a big uh, focus of that is to try to promote economic development in some of those poor regions of China. Um, so um, – and also the government is definitely making, you know, um, uh, economic growth in rural areas a top priority. And President Xi spoke on that very extensively um, in his no, in his report uh, to the Communist Party. So – uh, I think the Chinese are doing what is really the smartest thing they can do is move into people to cities, right? I mean, they're, they're building mega cities and they're moving people there and, and cities are much more economic centers for, for, for business and commercial activities. And now there's more people living in cities in China than ever before. So I think that's a smart strategy. So last, last 30 seconds. Um, how do you project the next six to 12 months, whether it's 
on China's macroeconomic situation, the business perspective in Congress. And most of this is driven primarily from the executive right now. Where's Congress in this? So. Uh, I'm going to stick to Chinese macro other than saying I really disagree with my colleagues on the panel about the characterization of U.S.-China economic relations, but my comparative advantage is Chinese macro. So um, the Chinese are going to see this year a similar pattern to last year where they flooded the economy with credit in the first quarter. It, the return on that flood of credit is, has diminished over time. The first quarter was clearly better than the fourth quarter of last year. The second quarter is going to be okay. And by the fourth quarter, the Chinese economy will again be weakening. Now, the one area where I will talk about uh, U.S.-China affecting Chinese macro is in the extent to which the government lies. Um, I mean, if you read the Chinese press every day, as I do, the level of propaganda has soared since the breakup or temporary breakup of the talks. If we're, if they're in a trade conflict with the U.S., the Chinese are going to be reporting much more exaggerated numbers than they would be otherwise. But the true trend of the Chinese economy is pretty easy to see. You had a manufacturing rebound in the first quarter and into the second quarter that has nothing to do with demand which is similar to what China did in 2009. That stimulus will fade out, and the actual state of the Chinese economy in the fourth quarter, if you care about GDP, fourth quarter of this year is going to be along the lines of, I don't know, 2.5%, 3% GDP growth. And then the Chinese will have yet another choice of, do we reform on pro-productivity basis? Probably not. Or do we add more credit? Yeah, I, w I would uh, just note that... Um, the two presidents will be meeting uh, on June 29 in Osaka at the G20. And I think that uh, just logically there are uh, three things that could happen. Uh, one is that there could be an agreement, uh, and uh, that would be the best scenario, I think, uh, for, um, for everyone. The second one would be that they would uh, agree to hold and extend negotiations, and the third possibility is uh, full tariffs and yet more tit-for-tat uh, retaliation, which in my view uh, will have a significant economic cost on, uh, on everyone. Um, I, would, I would just say that uh, if you really want to know, they should read your recent, most recent report on uh, the Section 301 um, because that report is very good because it's, it, uh, it states that Congress should demand that the administration uh, – uh, do an analysis on what these tariffs are going to do to the economy, right, and what the U.S. objectives are. I mean, this is something that Congress really needs to understand. I think Congress is in a tough position, right? So on the one hand, everybody wants to be tough on China. Everybody wants to be seen strong on China. And the whole idea is like we hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Eventually, the Chinese will cave, right, and then we'll have a big win and, you know, et cetera. But what we're also going to see is coming up two weeks of hearings, Two weeks of hearings by U.S. Uh, business people, right, who are going to be affected by all these increased tariffs. Now, imagine business person after business person coming in and talking about how this is going to put them out of business, how they're going to have to close their store, et cetera, right, what that's going to mean. And I think members are going to hear more and more and more flack uh, from their constituents about these economic impacts of that. So the whole idea is like, well, if there's no end in sight and we're suffering, you know, what's the end result? And, you know, you're rather, your, your report does a very good job of doing that. Uh, so I think that uh, – and Congress should try to assert itself really, in my opinion, a little bit more. Um, you look at this uh, Section 232, this, um, you know, national security bill to sort of like 
that the administration has used now to say that cars are a national security. I mean, Congress really needs to speak out on that kind of thing. That's really a misuse of that law. And Section 301, to me, is the same thing. They shouldn't really even be using Section 301. The main focus of this administration and the Congress really should be reforming the WTO, right? That should be so we have a stronger system and we get China to play by the rules, right? See, it doesn't seem to me smart to beat up on the WTO, our trading partners, and China at the same time. We need a better strategy. Well, if you want to learn more about uh, what Wayne was mentioning regarding our reports on Section 301 and 232, I encourage you to go to the heritage.org website. You can find it all on there uh, with a simple search. Um, let's thank the panel for today. Uh, thank you all for coming out. I know we only spent about an hour talking about the state of China's economy. Um, next time, we maybe go a little bit longer. <laughs> Well, great to work with you. I thought Aaron, I thought Aaron, good, same thing. I thought Aaron Ennis said that these, these